I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. <laughs> and we're giving you... Okay. I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. Oh my gosh. Okay, this I got it. I'm Deidre. I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you... A Million Murders. Uh-uh. <laughs> and we're giving you... A Million Murders. everybody hello we are got up this morning and coming to you live yes 10 o'clock saturday october 9th we're still doing our (laughs) marathon recording (laughs) session so this one is another one that i'll be doing and it is haunted salem there's one city you'd expect to have a lot of ghosts it would be salem massachusetts when people talk about the most haunted cities to visit salem almost always comes up on the list between the witch trials of 1692 and how old salem is in general it would be more surprising if the town wasn't haunted salem massachusetts was settled in 1626 at the site of a former native american village and trading center Much of the city's cultural identity reflects its role as the location of the infamous Salem Witch Trials. Police cars are adorned with witch logos, a public elementary school is known as Witchcraft Heights, and the Salem High School athletic teams are named the Witches. So, like, they really just lean into it. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, the Witches. Um, Gallows Hill was once believed to be the site of many public hangings. It is now a park and used as a playing field for various sports. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I'm like, ooh, I don't know about doing all that. (laughs) You know, I I would just kind of leave that bare and just be like, rest in peace. But now people like playing (laughs) soccer on top of where people were being hanged. Can you imagine being in the middle of a game and like, being pushed down ain't nobody around. Yeah, like, what's going on? It's the ghost. So, yeah, Salem is haunted, and here are some of the places and the stories. So, the first one is the old burying point. Um, one haunting you'll find in Salem is the second oldest cemetery in the country, the Old Burying Point Cemetery. The burying point was established in 1637. Everyone buried at the burying point. Why did I? (laughs) Buried at the burying point, the burying point, the burying point. So many times. Um, Everyone buried there holds some type of historic importance. Um, But most of the, but one of the most interesting names etched into the old gravestones. (sighs) It's going to track right on along. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the most interesting names etched into the old gravestones belongs to John Hathorne. John Hathorne was a judge during the Salem Witch Trials, and by most accounts, he was completely unapologetic about his involvement in the trials 
even upon his deathbed. Hawthorne is the great great grandfather of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, <laughs> yeah, the famous author. Who I actually wrote- know who that is. Yes. So, anybody who doesn't know, he's the famous author who wrote Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables. So, Nathaniel was super ashamed of his ancestors' actions, um, John Hathorne. So, he decided he was going to add a W to his name in hopes that it would conceal their relation. So, it's supposed to be Hathorne, but he put a W in it and was just like, oh no, it's Hawthorne, and was like... I don't want to be associated with him. That's funny. Yep, so, but obviously it got out. I don't know how long it took for it to get out, but you know. So along with Hathorne, you'll find most of the names associated with the Salem Witch Trials at Burying Point. From the Memorial for the Wrongly Accused, accused, from the Memorial of the Wrongfully Accused, situated at the front of the cemetery, to the headstones of their hateful accusers. Old Bearing Point Cemetery is a step back into time when the line between the wicked and innocent blurred. Others who were laid to rest there include Mayflower passenger Captain Richard Moore Hmm. and the last governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Simon Bradstreet. Uh, There are nearly 400 years of ghostly accounts at the old burying point. Sensitives who have visited the old burying point have reportedly become overwhelmed with a sensation of sadness and despair. Even while just walking through the graveyard, the heavy feeling of depression descends and sends innocent passerbys into feeling as though there is little hope to be found in the world. And then just like get super bummed out walking through there. Mm. I don't think I walked through there. No, no, no I don't want to be bummed out. Um, over the years people have successfully captured EVP of voices from beyond at Old Burying Point people have also captured mysterious shadows emanating lights orbs, white mist and even apparitions and pictures one of these apparitions belongs to Mary Bright Corey who died on August 28, 1684 she is the second wife of Giles Corey who later became an unfortunate victim of the Salem Witch Trials. Giles died from his inflicted torture of being pressed to death with stones on September 19th, 1692, just after the 8th anniversary of Mary's passing. Golly. Oh, yeah, it's bad. What? <laughs> like, Giles Corey? I feel like I said Giles and Giles and Giles. I've always said Giles Corey, but then I get, I know some people say it one way or the other. No, it was bad. I think I tell more about it in here a little later. But another ghost that has been seen is the figure of a woman who appears in the back corner of the cemetery. She is usually spotted wearing a powder blue dress whilst holding a picnic basket in hand. Sometimes she is also accompanied by a young boy. It is believed the two spirits were mother and son and died in a fire. Hmm. Yeah. That's kind of sad. I know. So, you know, like, people still bury people out there, apparently, because that Hmm. sounds like somebody from, like, the 40s, like, the way she's dressed to me. I don't know. Okay. The Ghost Lady in White. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. 
In addition to the other ghosts spotted at Old Burying Point, another apparition that has been seen with great frequency is a lady in white. However, she seems to be a bit camera shy as there is little photographic evidence of her manifestations. Once the cameras come out, the lady in white transitions into bright orbs or vanishes altogether. Um, although, on at least one occasion, an expertly timed photograph was slightly able to capture an image of her figure. The lady in white has allegedly even been spotted in the parking lot to the cemetery, as well as in nearby buildings and restaurants. Like, she just... She's just going wherever she wants. Yeah, she do what she want to do. She have, she traveling. She is Apparently. not bothered. <laughs> yeah, unbothered by the afterlife. Okay, she's doing what she wants. Um, <laughs> though it's entirely possible that these sightings are of different spirits, some have theorized that the Lady in White and the ghost of Mary Corey are the same spirit. Hmm. Yeah. Could yeah. be. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's time for a spooky ghostly encounter at the cemetery. Mm. Yeah. So this was taken from one of the websites I found um, when I was doing my research, and it's first-hand accounts of paranormal encounters at Old Bearing Point. So, here we go. A few years back, a man named Mike visited the cemetery and had a paranormal encounter. I saw it peeking out of the ground, he said, as he described what he captured with his camera. He claimed that the apparition was just in front of one of the gravestones and that it looked like a very strange torso wearing a suit, tie, mutton chops, shoulder height out of the ground. So I don't... <laughs> shoulder height out of the ground. Hmm. Oh... That's weird. Okay. I'm like picturing it and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> Not long after Mike's visit to the cemetery, two young friends dared to enter burying point. It was in the dead of night that they walked through the graveyard and it wasn't long before they saw something that they would not soon forget. <laughs> what they saw was a... <sighs> what they saw was a shadowy apparition rising up from the ground right in front of a gravestone. Another pair of sisters had encountered at the cemetery... Jesus. Another pair of sisters had an encounter at the cemetery, but their experience occurred while on a ghost tour. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Could you imagine? No. Just like, oh my God. Neither of them had been to Burying Point prior to that night. Like others on the tour, they snapped copious amount of photos. Uh, and then later, when they uploaded the photos on their computer, they were shocked to discover they had captured paranormal images. That's when it always happens. Mm-hmm. Every time you take them and you're looking in, in, in the moment, ain't nothing there. But then when you... <laughs> yeah, and then they just pop up they pop afterwards. Up. One of the sisters said that she doesn't even have to look at the pictures to know that something supernatural occurred that night in the cemetery. For her, she says, those images she caught on camera still haunt my mind to this day. And that is Old Bearing Point Cemetery. Mm. Okay, so a next, a next, the next haunted place in Salem is the Witch House. Well, that I'm going to go over. There are too many 
Like I, yes, like I think I have like only three or four places here, but there's so much extensive research and like stuff that has been written about it that just doing three is going to take me, you know, a little bit. So always can be a part two. So part six. <laughs> yeah, just Salem part six, six hours of Salem hauntedness, like just floating around. Okay, so the witch house is thick with black timber, two and a half stories tall, located at 310 Essex Street in the McIntyre Historic District of Salem. The witch house is the only surviving structure with direct ties to the Salem witch trials, but the hauntings go back further than the witch trials. So, a lot of people have seen this house. It's like that tall, it's like a two-story black house, but it's like, it sounds familiar. There's not like a bunch of different things. It's not shaped like houses today. It's like two stories straight up and down. There's not any like parts of the house that are coming out further than the other. So everybody pretty much knows what the house is. Like once you see it, you're like, oh yeah. Purchased in 1675 by Judge Jonathan Corwin magistrate of the salem witch trials the witch house remained with the corwins until the mid 1800s the corwin curse marked the house by 1718 eight corwin lives were lost to premature death catastrophically crippling the corwin estate Mm -hmm. rumor once held that the witch house was used for the trial's preliminary examinations though this was later disproved the witch house itself harbored no witches, though Judge Corwin did execute 19 charged with witchcraft. Even the mason of the house was accused and acquitted of witchcraft. So, like, the person who built this house was accused of witchcraft. And they were like, oh, Can you no. imagine? I'd be, if I ever got accused of witchcraft, I'd be scared. Yeah. I mean, I would never do it. But you know there's pe- plenty of people that... Oh, there's people nowadays who would thrive. I never touched it, like... Yeah. Okay, so the Corwin curse... About to go into all that. Because mm. it's uh, pretty serious. It's not good. <laughs> From 1684 to 1690, the witch house was home to its fair share of tragedy. Jonathan and Elizabeth Corwin had five new children... All of them died young. John, born in 1684, died at nine weeks of age. Margaret Corwin, born 1685, died at six months of age. Anna Corwin, born 1687, lived longer than her siblings, but suffered premature death at the age of 19. Golly. Yeah, like, two additional deaths would occur by 1690 with the loss of Jonathan Corwin Jr., by his third month and Herbert by his eighth week. So two months. I don't know why they... Anyway. So Jonathan and Elizabeth Corwin continued to inhabit the home until 1717, yet there were no longer heads of the household. The witch house was instead overseen by their son, the Reverend George Corwin. Uh, His oversight was interrupted by his two untimely deaths. Fever claimed the reverend in November of 1717. Then his wife, Mittable, 
Metable? <laughs> it's like M-E-H-I-T-A-B-L-E. And I don't think it's like Mahitable or Mahitable. I don't know. I'm saying Metable. I don't know. In 1718. So, everybody's dropping like flies. It's not good. This fever likewise claimed Jonathan and Elizabeth. George Jr. and Samuel, a pair of young boys, were all that were left of the Corwin legacy. Samuel recounted the curse in a journal, naming death as the unrelenting evening of mankind, which had made such havoc among his relations. The Corwin estate collapsed, the witch house remained. You know, Judge Corwin, this whole curse, everybody's just going through it. Mm-hmm, sounds like it. Yeah. The witch house holds more than the haunted, however. Inside a wall of the witch house, you will find a black shoe, a superstitious ritual to ward off witches. There are also witch bottles, a counter magical instrument containing mm, urine, <laughs> urine, hair, pins, and fingernails. Mm-mm. Yeah. The witch bottle, like the black shoe, would protect the house from evil. Unlike the black shoe, the witch bottle would capture evil before expelling evil. The urine was thought to attract a witch, which I don't know what would, I don't know why urine would attract anybody. You know how it reminded me of when you said the urine? Mm-mm. Whenever in the show you, when he was in the house and he peed in that Look. jar and stuck it on the shit. I just forgot it. Oh my God. Yes, yes. So that's what this is like. <laughs> but with fingernails and hairpins and all this stuff. So, ugh. But yeah, apparently urine was thought to attract a witch. And the pins were thought to catch and contain her. Uh, the witch house also possesses a puppet. A doll used for spellcasting or sympathetic magic. Dolls. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. The puppet found in the nearby house of Bridget Bishop may retain residual energy from Salem's witch trials. How could it not? Bridget Bishop was the first executed. This is crazy that they still have something of hers from like, you know, all that time. So that is the witch house. Now we shall move on to the Joshua Ward house. The Joshua Ward house has quite an illustrious history. Built for the wealth sea merchant Joshua Ward in 1784, the two-story brick federal style once had a grand view of the South River until 1830 when the Front Street Waterway was filled in. Even President George Washington paid a visit when he traveled to Salem in 1789. Hmm. Yeah, like this is this was the place to be, apparently. Which, of course, Salem's right outside of Boston, so it's, you yeah. know, all the founding fathers and stuff were floating on by. <laughs> Um, according to a 1979 article from the Salem Evening News, the Joshua Ward House on Washington Street, opposite Front Street, was once symbolic of Salem's early prosperity. When George Washington visited the city in 1789, he asked to stay at the house, then only a few years old. Old. Then only a few <laughs> years old. So he's like, ooh, that Joshua Ward House just got built. Like, I'm staying there. Wow. All right, George. So, he was like, that's where I'm trying to go. 
So the Joshua Ward House's origins may have started in 1784, but the property's history dates back to the 1600s and Salem's infamous witch trials. The original building to sit at 148 Washington Street belonged to George Corwin, whose ghastly reputation has preceded him for four centuries. So this is like, you know, the Corwin's from the witch house. Yeah. Yeah. So, at the age of 70... <laughs> at the age of 25, on May 27, 1692, George was elected to the position of high sheriff in Essex County. Corwin was well-connected in the colonial Massachusetts. His uncles were the justices Corwin and Winthrop, and he was also the son-in-law of Justice Gredney. By the time Corwin stepped into his, the position, the Salem witch hysteria had already erupted. Women like Rebecca Nurse and Sarah Good, among others, were charged with casting evil magic on the afflicted. And powerful men like George Corwin were all too willing to assign the blame and torture the accused. Not three months after Corwin stepped into office as high sheriff, he was tasked with transporting five of the most infamous witches of the Salem Witch Trial. On July 19th, 1692, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, Sarah Good, and Sarah Wilds were removed from the jail and shoved into wooden carts. An early morning uh -huh. fog rolled in. Yeah, it's not, it's not looking good. Mm. Um, an early morning fog rolled in. Townspeople lined the streets to watch the cart rumble down the dirt roads to the lake for Watch the executions. It. Oh, yeah. Like, they loved a good... They loved this. People ate this up. They were like, here they come. They're going to execute them today. Insane. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, it was tradition for the accused to attempt facing death in order to confess their sins or prove their innocence. Ironically, however, the method of proving one's innocence generally meant death. Like, they were like, we're going to tie her hands and feet together and dunk her underwater. And if she's able to survive, she's a witch. Uh -oh. But if she doesn't survive, she's dead. So she's it's like, damned oh, either way. Well, she died. I guess she wasn't a witch. This is literally what was happening. Like, it's insane. So it was just like, she'll save herself if she's a witch. And then it's like, well, she, she didn't. Anyway. So I guess she wasn't a witch. So now we just killed her for no reason. Huh? I said she dies either way. Yeah. It's like, you just don't want to be accused of witch. Because if it is, it's basically over. So... As the high sheriff, George Corwin had fulfilled his duties in bringing the women to the gallows. From there, it was Reverend Nicholas Noyes, Noyes? I don't know. N-O-Y-E-S. Noyes' responsibility to coerce the accused into admitting their guilt. Noyes demanded one of the accused witches, Sarah Good, to confess her sins. She refused, snapping, You are a liar. I am no more witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Okay. <laughs> with, with those words, Sarah Good... Period. Sealed, uh, period. <laughs> with those words, Sarah Good sealed her fate. 
Corwin positioned them all above the lake, linking their nooses around their respective necks. Then he hanged them all, all bodies plunging into the water. Crazy. Yeah. Fun fact, Sarah Good's final words would later come to haunt the townspeople of Salem when Reverend Noyes died bleeding at the mouth. Ooh, a blood vessel had popped, but superstitious believers believed that he had been cursed by a witch. So, you know, it's kind of like none of these people were witches. Yeah. But then all this weird stuff starts happening, so it's like, oh, were they though? So following the executions, the berry, the berries, the berries were bodied. The bodies were buried oh. nearby. <laughs> I was like, wait, that makes sense. <laughs> The bodies were buried nearby in the rocky terrain. Under the cover of darkness, Rebecca Nurse's family took a small boat, perhaps, perhaps a canoe, perhaps a <laughs> canoe up the river so that they could retrieve Rebecca's body, which is like low key. You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's real. Like mm-hmm. they're going to go get her body knowing that they'd probably get killed too if they did it. Like this is a whole thing. Crazy. Yeah. So, according to the historian Marilyn K. Roach, from there, a small craft could slip downstream past town on the midnight's high tide and then north up the estuary to Crane River and along its narrowing length to the nurse's land, where they buried her privately on home ground. So, it was kind of like an easy, sneaky little mission so they were able to do that Uh, and for now the witches and sorcery had been put to bed but the fear of the devil persisted and led to more deaths especially those hand delivered by George Corwin yeah now this is the execution of warlock (laughs) but probably not a warlock but you know Giles Corey So Corwin took a fancy to a certain type of cruel killing. Allegedly, his favorite method of dragging confessions out of the accused was to tie them from their neck to their ankles. Bending them in half until blood streamed from their nose. Something would snap instantly on me and kill me instantly because my body... I know it's not my to be. Touch my ankle. <laughs> not the neck. Not the neck. Lord, just cerebral, just hemorrhaging everywhere because my body <laughs> just won't bend. It's like, we can't do it. No. I'm stiff as a board most of the time. It's pitiful. I got to start stretching more. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Um, oh. Neck to the ankles, bending them in half, blood streaming from their nose. Like, jeez. For poor Giles Corey, one of the only warlocks to be accused during witch trial hysteria, um, his punishment stretched to new limits. I almost said length. On September 18th, 1692, Giles Corey's execution was scheduled for that. In the months leading up to his trial, there had been a bunch of claims of Giles Corey being a warlock. In June of 1692, Elizabeth Woodwell and Mary Walcott, or Walcott, 
Mary Walcott, two of the afflicted, had watched in shock as Giles Corey entered the Salem meeting house, despite the fact that he'd already been imprisoned. In another instance, a ghost had risen from the dead Mm-mm. to tell Ann Putnam Jr., which that's funny, Ann Putnam Jr. Like, they're like, no, I want her to have my name. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's really like a woman who's a junior. Um, so this ghost had risen and told Ann Putnam Jr. that Corey had been the spirit's murderer. Mm-mm. Yeah, which is like, Okay. Two weeks before the official trial, the court had attempted to push Corey to answer the formality which started the witch trial. Um, or two weeks before the official trial, the court had attempted to push Corey to answer the formality which started the trial. Without saying the words, by God and my country, no trial could occur. Corey refused standing mute as the term applied. Punishment for this crime under English law meant that Corey was punishable by pianforte et dur, pressing under heavy weights. This almost looks like Italian, so I can't tell if this is like Italian or Latin. It doesn't seem like Latin. Pianforte et dur. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. So I may be saying that wrong. Pianforte et dur. Pressing under heavy weights <laughs> until the words were finally said. After months of back and forth, including Corey's good friend, Captain Thomas Gardner, pleading with him to just confess, September 19th was the final day. Corey refused to confess to the crime, nor would he say the necessary words for an actual trial to continue. And so George Corwin adhered the law, however cruel it was. Corwin put Giles Corey into the dirt leveling a flat wooden board on top of his splayed body. Then the true torture began. One by one, large stones were placed on top mm. of Corey as a group of onlookers gathered round to watch the proceedings in an open pasture not far from the prison. While the hope was for Corey to plead guilty early on, he never did so. In fact, it's said that Giles Corey spoke only once through the entire ordeal. More weight, he ordered, as his body imprinted into the dirt. Wow. Yeah, he's like, no, I'm not. I didn't do it, so I'm not going to say it. More weight. Put put, put more weight on me. Just go ahead and do it. Okay, a little bit of a trigger warning, because this is where it starts talking about what happens when you get pressed to death. Allegedly, as Corey's tongue began to loll from his mouth, a sign that death was upon him, George Corwin unsympathetically used the tip of his walking stick to push Corey's tongue back into his mouth. Like, wow, okay. Corey died not long after that. His body was so brutally crushed that there was no hope for his revival. His death was the only pressing to ever occur in Massachusetts, but it is one image that we would never, we have never been able to forget. Wow. Yeah. Corey's body was buried by Butts Brook, the burial place of suicides in Salem town, as though he had chosen to take his own life. And yeah. Oh my gosh. Low down and dirty. They listen. Yeah, he put all them rocks on it. Yeah. Uh, and George Corwin, the high sheriff, whom everyone despised, visited Corey's home and took all of the man's money and goods as his Ancient. own. Disrespectful. Yeah. 
They were cold-blooded. Cold-blooded. <laughs> Centuries later, George Corwin is still remembered as the most hated man of the Salem witch trials. And so it's not much of a surprise that his spirit may still be haunting the land in which, in which he once lived. The ghost of the Joshua Ward house. Uh-uh. Here we go. <laughs> it's said that three spirits linger at the Joshua Ward house, two of which are not the friendliest of paranormal entities. Hmm. The spirit of the strangler. <laughs> On April 12th, 1696, just 30 years of age, the monster George Corwin slipped and fell in the snow while at home. Medicine suggests that he suffered a heart attack, but what occurred next is cause for many rumors that still persist today among tour companies and amateur historians. Despite having a hand in the trials of all 19 deaths of the Salem witch trials and over 150 arrests during the period, one in particular stuck out the most, Mary English. Her relation, Philip English, was not so enamored with the fact that Corwin, in his customary way, went to the English household and confiscated all goods to be found there. Corwin took and took, but a year or so later, Philip English enacted his revenge by suing George Corwin for what had been stolen from him. But Corwin had lost everything by then and was imprisoned because he could not pay bond. So he's like the high, he was the high sheriff and now he's in jail. Locals also say that Corwin's family buried his body in the basement. They feared Philip English would strike another revenge by stealing Corwin's body. Other rumors include one that had Philip English throwing Corwin's dead body over his horse saddle and riding away from Salem Town. Yes. <laughs> so the truth is, Corwin's family interred his body in the family tomb on the land and not in the cellar. It seems, however, Corwin's spirit has never left his land. There have been multiple accounts of people experiencing a choking sensation on the second floor of the property. Oh, no. Yeah, just trying to strangle people. Uh, on one such occasion, a visitor was upstairs when all of a sudden he felt an invisible force encircle his throat and squeeze. Air became harder to take in, and he later swore in Robert Calhill's book, Ghostly Haunts, his throat had closed up completely. Mm-hmm. That's insane. When he twisted around to see who was there, he found an empty hallway. He was completely alone. Many believe that Corwin hauled his victims of the witch dungeon in order to privately interrogate, i.e. strangle them, in his home. Now, the Joshua Ward house. There is no evidence suggesting that Corwin did this, but visitors to the property remain wary anyway. And rightfully so, since the mere idea of being choked by a poltergeist is literally the stuff of nightmares. Right. Like, I ain't, no. trying, to get, I ain't trying to do all that. Yeah. Absolutely not. An angry entity named Giles Corey. Ah. I'm like, Giles, you back, boy? Uh-uh. <laughs> Just as he back. He back. He back with it. I'm stronger than ever. <laughs> like, y'all try to crush me, but I'm back. Um, Just as... Duh. Okay. Just as George Corwin's ghost haunts the Joshua Ward house, so does his victim, Giles Corey. On 
More than one occasion, employees have witnessed inexplicable activity that they attribute to the warlock's vengeful, vengeful spirit. <laughs> Activities such as books being yanked from the shelves, cold spots in an otherwise warm room, and candles found in a pool of wax, though the candles were never set aflame, are all said to be signs that Jaws ghost has not yet crossed over to the other side. Huh. Mm -hmm. He's stuck. Just... Just chilling. That sucks. Wondering when. Mm. Like, bless his heart. He wasn't a wit. He wasn't a warlock. Like, they're just like, just killing people. <laughs> Most peculiar is the fact that these candles are often melted into S shapes. Perhaps in honor of Sheriff Corwin? You know, we don't know. While the answers continue to elude the living, there's no secret that the final ghost said to haunt the Joshua Ward house has a strong dislike towards men, and she does not hide from making this dislike known. Well. Yeah, she like, so this is what they believe is a ghost of a witch. Sightings of a female spirit are common occurrences at the Joshua Ward house, especially on the upper floor. It was one stray piece of paranormal evidence that catapulted this rogue ghost to international stardom, though. In the 1980s, Carson Realty was hosting a massive holiday party when one of the employees snapped a quick Polaroid photo. Shaking it, Carson expected to see the image of a light-haired woman enjoying the party. When he, what he saw when he glanced down was something entirely different. A dark-haired woman with rough features and skin that was so pale and translucent, he had to take another look. When Robert Calhill published his book, Ghostly Haunts, he incorporated the photo of the ghostly figure, and it caught the notice of major TV news stations across the counter. Various reports of seeing this dark-haired figure lounging on the second floor had since come out, and most assumed the female spirit to be one of the witches George Corwin arrested and imprisoned, and possibly even killed. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> if this is true, then it's no wonder that men who visit the Joshua Ward house bear the brunt of the poltergeist activity. On several instances, they have left with scratches etched into their chests and the uncomfortable sensation that they are being watched. It is possible that the choking phenomena is not George Corwin's doing, but actually that of a witch he sent to their death unfairly. And those are a couple of, like literally three places that are haunted in Salem, Massachusetts. That was good. Thank you. You're welcome. I liked it. I liked it. I was like, I like on. it. I love it. Part two. Can run, boy. Okay, so yes, you all. That is it. And if you have any suggestions, comments, concerns, want to share a spooky story it'd be great to do it now because it's getting close to halloween halloweeny halloweeny halloween yes and we can just i don't know we can figure something out you know we're actually not going to record again until like december yeah <laughs> but you know i don't know and it's if october you... 9th isn't that crazy yeah it's insane literally almost a month we've got a lot going on so we are 
having to get some stuff built up. So, yeah. But, um, yeah. Send all that stuff to a million murders at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at a million murders and look at the pictures we post for each case. And then you can like us on Facebook, our Facebook page. It's a million murders. And you can also, if you want to do a discussion or something, you can chill out there. Have you not? Do what you want. Yep, so I think that is it. Don't forget to tell your friends and family about our podcast. If you like us, yay. Yeah, yeah. If you like us, then, you know, we're pretty tame as far as language goes. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, you know, we're just doing our thing. So if you like us, tell your friends. Like she said, tell them to go to our Facebook group or our Instagram or whatever. So... Give us a try, see if they like it. Yeah, they can just see. I mean, I know we're not for fine. We're not for everybody. (laughs) I mean, we are. We struggle half the time and laugh and are goofy. So it's not for everybody. Some people want it to be straight to the point. You're not going to get that here. So if (laughs) so, if that's not for you, then that's okay. And there's no judgment, and it's all good. Okay. You boo boo. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you guys for tuning in. We hope you come back for. A million million more. more. Bye. Bye -bye. Mm Bye-bye.